Today's episode is brought to you by Squarespace. Squarespace is the easiest way to create a beautiful website, blog, or online store for you and your ideas. Squarespace features an elegant interface, beautiful templates, and incredible 24-7 customer support. Start building your website today at squarespace.com. Enter the offer code LEFT at checkout to get 10% off. Squarespace, build it beautiful. And now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Young Turks, The David Pakman Show, The Jimmy Dore Show, Counterspin, Activism from the Center on American-Islamic Relations, and Common Sense with Dan Carlin. A while back, uh, Bernie Sanders' speech was interrupted by Black Lives Matter protesters, and he actually had the temerity to let them talk. He was being respectful to the protesters. Donald Trump doesn't roll that way, and at the time, he told us that if anyone tried to uh, protest him like that, including Black Lives Matter, it would end up differently. Listen to what he said back then. I would never give up my microphone. I thought that was disgusting. That showed such weakness. The way he was taken away by two young women. The microphone, they just took the whole place over. And the audience, which liked him, I mean, they were him. They're saying, what's going on? How can this happen? That will never happen with me. I don't know if I'll do the fighting myself or if other people will. But believe me, that's not going to happen to Trump. Well, we have a pretty good sense of who's going to do the fighting now. Uh, this happened over and over again uh, in Trump rallies. Uh, it happened again over the weekend in Birmingham, Alabama. I'm going to show you that video in a second. But let's give you proper context here because the rest of the media isn't doing it. This is not the first time. Now, remember, a, a protester was spat upon in another Trump rally. Here, if you don't remember, here's a tape on it. Now, that started getting physical, so it, it, the man who was spit upon was incredibly restrained there. Uh, I don't know if I would have been likewise. Uh, good for him. And then there was the two uh, idiots up in Boston who beat the hell out of a Latino homeless guy, uh, thinking that he wasn't a citizen, and they said uh, they wanted to support Trump. Trump afterwards said, hey, some of my supporters are enthusiastic. Okay. So that, that, the Boston guys were not at a rally. But now you got the spitting at a rally. Remember, there was another man who was beat up at a Trump rally. Again, everybody's forgotten this, but it just happened about two weeks ago. A Latino guy was protesting at a Trump rally. They knocked him down and they dragged him out. If you don't remember, take a look at the video. We were worried at that time that that was the beginning of fascism as this man is clearly being assaulted and they're chanting USA, USA. Uh, as to the best of my knowledge, we asked for the authorities to investigate that and arrest the guy who clearly assaulted him on tape and they have done no such thing. So uh, now Trump is in Alabama over the weekend and there's a Black Lives Matter activist and he's protesting and you hear Trump in the background say, quote, Get him the hell out of here. And they do, uh, but not before seriously assaulting him. Now let's go to the videotape. Uh, at the, at the, you'll see that the man has already been knocked down when the tape begins. 
From time to time, people get escorted uh, from rallies. It happens, right? Uh, the authorities are supposed to do that, and they're supposed to do it calmly. And as you saw in the first video where the Latino guy was attacked, there was another Latino guy, and he put up his arms and was walking away with the authorities so that he was not attacked, right? Now, in this case, I don't know if you can tell, but it looked like uh, the, the gentleman involved here, uh, Mercutio Southall, did put up his arms in the distance before he was knocked down. Uh, but this is not the authorities leading someone away. This is several people assaulting a guy. And as you'll see here, uh, Southall says that he was punched and kicked and choked. So you know that that's partly true because you see an unknown woman, you hear her in the CNN tape saying, quote, don't choke him, don't choke him, don't choke him. Now you say that when someone's choking him. Uh, Southall says the guy who was choking him was the guy that you saw in that ridiculous fighting stance in the blue and white shirt going like this. He apparently had hit him several times already and was choking him when he was on the ground. That's what Southall says. You see the tape for yourself on what happened afterwards. Now, Southall said that when he was down there and all these people were attacking him at the same time, uh, they it felt, uh, quote, like a lynch mob. Okay, He said that they uh, some had said the N-word, some called him a monkey. Uh, now, we have the woman saying, don't choke him on tape. Otherwise, it's the the camera in the beginning was too far away. You couldn't hear what the crowd was saying. So that's South Hall's version of how it went down. Now, as they're doing all these terrible things, um, you know what some of the guys there chanting were? They were chanting, all lives matter. As they're showing enormous disregard for this guy's life. Okay. Um, now, he says he was punched in the neck punched in the back of the head, choked, etc. They're choking a guy as they're chanting, all lives matter. Don't talk about not getting it, right? And here's a guy surrounded by white dudes in Alabama, a black guy. He says his grandparents were in uh, on the Edmund Pettus Bridge in that famous march, right? You, you know, Selma, Alabama. Okay, it's the same state, Alabama. There they are in Birmingham. They're beating the guy down, uh, chanting, all lives matter, as they choke him. Here we are, man. We're right back in the soup. So, uh, Sean Edwards, meanwhile, is the local authorities. I'm sure the local authorities uh, in Alabama will be uh, very much on his side. I mean, the guy, you saw it on tape, clearly assaulted.
clearly assaulted, right? I mean, how many people is, are the cops bringing in now? Three, four people. Now, they kicked him out. I understand when they, you remove a guy who is being disruptive. Did they then go back in and get the guys who assaulted him? <laughs> of course not. Sean Edwards, who's the Birmingham police uh, lieutenant, says, ah, oh, man, our, our officers didn't see the beating. I have the tape. I saw the beating. You just saw the beating. They didn't see it. He says, quote, and now this is a, going after the victim. I would be a little cautious with Mercutio Southall. He's been an agitator from day one. Mercutio is always the agitator. Oh, we're right back there, man. This is exa That's exactly what they said during the Civil Rights Movement. We don't want these agitators around here. We don't want those northern agitators, they used to say. So instead of helping the victim, they turn around and call him the agitator. And so far, from the looks of it, no attempt to arrest anyone who clearly, clearly assaulted him. How long is this going to go? How much further is this going to go? Now, in the beginning, the Trump campaign said, oh, no, we, we don't condone any violence. And then Trump went on TV and said, nah, not really. I kind of do condone it. Here, watch. And that was, uh, was yeah. I don't know, you say roughed up. He was so obnoxious and so loud. He was screaming. I had 10,000 people in the room yesterday, 10,000 people. And this guy started screaming by himself. And they did, I don't know, rough up? He should have been, maybe he should have been roughed up because it was absolutely disgusting what he was doing. This was not handled the way Bernie Sandals handled, handled his problem, I will tell you. But mm -hmm. I have a lot of fans, and they were not happy about it. He's bragging about it. I have a lot of fans, and they weren't happy about the protester. And maybe he got roughed up. Here, they, you, you heard it for yourself, but I'll quote you again. Maybe he should have been roughed up. It was disgusting what he was doing. The guys chanting All Lives Matter as they kick the crap out of this guy is not disgusting. Those are his fans who are just sticking up for him. And any protesters should know that they will be physically assaulted at a Donald Trump event. Yeah, yeah, this is exactly how fascism begins. So they brook no dissent, and the answer will be physical, and it'll be violent. And already the authorities are like, oh, what? They didn't arrest the guy who attacked the Latino guy. They didn't arrest the spitter. They didn't arrest any of the guys in Alabama. So it's open season. You want to try to protest Donald Trump? Imagine if this guy's president, and he's having his fans beat up anyone who protests the president. Is this America? Look at what we've become. He has a comfortable lead in the Republican race. One more quote from uh, Southall. He says, I got punched in the face. I got punched in the neck. I got kicked in the chest, kicked in the stomach. Somebody stepped on my hand. Okay. And like I said, he said he was choked too. And Trump says, I got fans who are doing that. He brags about it on TV. You see, the Trump isn't leading in the Republican primaries despite this. He's leading because of this, his lead will not go down. It'll go up from now on. Okay. And this is not concerning because it is one rogue candidate. And we're worried about what one guy thinks. We're worried because it is representative. He's leading. He's number one among the Republicans. They, Republican voters look at that. They don't view that as a problem. They view it as the solution. There's something deeply wrong with this country, and certainly with one particular party in this country that's headed down a dark, dark path.
If heaven and hell decide that they both are satisfied, and illuminate the nose on their vacancy signs. If there's no one beside you when your soul embarks, then I'll follow you into the dark. And I'll follow you into the dark. Yesterday we had this conversation about Donald Trump and his supporters, and I suggested that Donald Trump is not really making anyone more racist or xenophobic. And aside from whether Donald Trump himself even really believes the stuff he's been saying, I believe what is happening is that Donald Trump is catalyzing, coalescing, and channeling the racism and xenophobia that are already within the Republican Party. And we now have a new poll that suggests our hypothesis was absolutely spot on. Almost two-thirds of likely 2016 Republican primary voters like Donald Trump's idea to ban Muslims from entering the United States. About one-third say it makes them also more likely to vote for Donald Trump than they were before Donald Trump came up with that idea. These are the findings from a new Bloomberg Politics Purple Strategies poll, which was conducted a couple of days ago. This, Lewis, is more evidence that indeed Donald Trump is taking advantage of the racism and xenophobia that already live within Republican primary voters and coalescing them into one. True. I, I think that he is successfully doing that. But I do think that... The things he says and and uh, recently probably do cause uh, racism xenophobia as well uh, because uh, he just brings this discussion up I mean there are probably people watching TV and all that reading all the headlines now who probably didn't really even start thinking about this stuff until they heard Donald Trump go off and did the media frenzy around it. Well, one thought I had was there may be some sort of casual xenophobes and racists who in the back of their mind, they say, hey, wouldn't this be a better country without Muslims or something like that? But they, it never even gets to the idea of formulating a policy idea. And now that Trump says, hey, here's an idea. Let's ban Muslims from traveling to the U.S. The sort of casual xenophobes, the ones who are in the back of their mind saying, hey, maybe we could do something about this. They say, hey, that's a really good idea. Yeah, I, um, certainly it's it's creating this almost brotherhood like uh you know following mentality and you know good for trump he's he's doing incredible things with crazy comments and i day every every week it gets crazier imagine what he'll say next week I, and, I bet and every week someone always says hey this is it now that trump has said this that is it for his support but increasingly we're finding that he can basically say whatever he wants and it doesn't seem to impact his support because his supporters are so heavily uh, invested in these ludicrous ideas, which, again, I don't even know that Trump actually supports personally, but he's making a really good campaign out of it. And uh, Trump appears to be, uh, in a sense, a master politician. Republican voters seem to like the Muslim ban, ignoring the fact that it's against all of the founding principles of the United States. It's against the foundation of the United States as, as, a, as a separation from religious oppression in England. It all goes out the window. It doesn't make a difference. The Trump supporters love it. And I, I still believe that Donald Trump is not going to be the eventual Republican nominee. But it is not going to be because he wants to ban Muslims. That, that seems to be 
almost an advantage rather than a liability at this point. Between the American public and a billionaire, the police will always choose the billionaire. And Trump's goons are already lining up for service. Which is why the New England Police Union just endorsed right-wing extremists and modern-day Hitler wannabe Donald Trump. Yeah, the cops are on the side of a fascist billionaire who wants to round up 11 million people, have the government register certain peoples of a certain religion, and is cool with internment camps for U.S. citizens. Feel safer? Look at Occupy Wall Street and you'll see that the American police force is already the billionaire's Gestapo. Hitler had the brown shirts, Trump has blue shirts, and Chris Christie has the tight pants. Every day in America, cops are accustomed to being the deciding votes. People who support Trump are comfortable with the police state. But anyone who believes in democracy shouldn't be comfortable. Trump says, we can't worry about being politically correct. Or even being a semi-decent human being, apparently. When you're born into wealth like Trump, you don't worry about much. Politically correct has become the clarion call of the angry white idiot who feels victimized that he can't harass Jews, blacks, or Muslims. You got the guts to be really politically incorrect? Get this. Just recently, a judge ruled on a former Georgia deputy who threw a grenade in a crib and critically injured a 19-month-old baby in a mistaken drug raid. The grenade ripped open a hole in the baby's chest that exposed ribs and covered the baby in burns. The cop was acquitted of any wrongdoing. In Chicago, a police commander was found not guilty of aggravated battery and misconduct when he shoved his gun down the suspect's throat while threatening to kill him. Even though the man's DNA was found on the cop's gun, the judge still did her job and saved that cop from facing justice. You know, a state unwilling to protect its citizens from the police is one that we live in. They won't even protect a 19-month-old baby. A militarized police force, a culture of brutality, broken justice system, all of which demands reform. Or is that too politically incorrect? Don't tell a man that he can't come here because he got brown eyes and a wavy kind of hair. And don't tell a woman that she can't go there because she prays a little different to a God up there. You say you're a Christian because God made you. You say you're a Muslim because God made you. You say you're a Hindu and the next man a Jew. Then we all kill each other because God told us to. No, hello, hello. Trump saying that he's going to do a total and complete ban on Muslims in the country. Even uh, Darth Cheney came out against it. Uh, we want to show you uh, some others uh, that came out against it in the Republican Party uh, because they're almost universal in criticizing him, which they almost never do their own. 
First, we go to the new Speaker of the House, Paul Ryan. I do not comment on what's going on in the presidential election. I will take an exception today. This is not conservatism. What was proposed yesterday is not what this party stands for, and more importantly, it's not what this country stands for. Not only are there many Muslims serving in our armed forces, dying for this country, there are Muslims serving right here in the House, working every day to uphold and to defend the Constitution. Some of our best and biggest allies in this struggle and fight against radical Islamic terror are Muslims, the vast, 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 vast majority of whom are peaceful, who believe in pluralism, freedom, democracy. Well, you got to hand it to Donald Trump. Uh, he's gotten to other Republicans to actually defend Muslims. <laughs> I didn't think that was possible, but there it is. So uh, give uh, Paul Ryan credit there. Rare time that I agree with him, but he, he basically said to Donald Trump, dude, what are you thinking? You can't ban Muslim veterans that are American citizens from coming back into the country. You can't ban U.S. citizens from coming back into the country. You can't ban all Muslims. And remember, the Iraqis that we went to go liberate are our allies. The Kurds who are fighting ISIS on the ground, are our best friends on the fight against ISIS, are Muslims. Hello, McFly. So now, of course, the other presidential contenders come in here. Jeb Bush tweets out, Donald Trump is unhinged. His policy, quote-unquote, quote proposals are not serious. Lindsey Graham uh, goes further. He says, uh, Donald Trump has gone from making absurd comments to being downright dangerous with his bombastic rhetoric. Uh, he continues to say he's putting at risk the lives of interpreters, American supporters, diplomats, and the troops in the region by making these bigoted comments. Very clearly calling him a bigot there. Uh, John Kasich, uh, also in the race, says, uh, this is just more of the outrageous divisiveness that characterizes his every breath and another reason why he's entirely unsuited to lead the United States. Damn. Then Lindsey Graham did something interesting. He called out another presidential contender for being relatively quiet about this. So these guys are clear. Marco Rubio is still hiding somewhere in the bushes. There's another snake in the bushes, and his name is Ted Cruz. So Lindsey Graham asked, Donald Trump today took xenophobia and religious bigotry to a new level. It is time for Ted Cruz to quit hiding in the weeds and speak out against Donald Trump's xenophobia and racial bigotry. So is he going to do that? Here's what Cruz said. Uh, I disagree with that proposal. I like Donald Trump. Uh, a lot of our... Friends here have encouraged me to criticize and attack Donald Trump. I'm not interested in doing so, but I believe we need a plan that is focused on the direct threat, and the threat we're facing is radical Islamic terrorism. So not interested in criticizing him? This guy, man, he's riding Trump's coattails. And when Trump goes down, he's going to say, hey, look, I'm just a slightly more sophisticated face on that same demagoguery and xenophobia and bigotry. So, one, he refused to criticize him. Two, he said, yeah, I mean, I don't agree with that policy. No, actually, in a lot of ways, he has proposed policy that is identical to it. In fact, he was just proposing three bills that would keep out Muslims from the country. These are not thought experiments. These are not, uh, hey, maybe at some point we should do something about it. No, they're bills. that They would become legislation and they would go have the force of law. So let me just tell you about one of them. One bill would put 
a three-year suspension and resettlement of refugees from countries with a substantial Islamic State or Al-Qaeda presence, which are mostly majority Muslim countries. So by that vague standard of, if there is substantial Al-Qaeda or ISIS presence, which, by the way, includes not only Syria, but Iraq, our allies in Iraq. So Kurds that were fighting on the ground with us against ISIS, if you're in Iraq, sorry, significant ISIS presence in Iraq. You're mainly a Muslim country. You're banned. And remember, Ted Cruz also specific proposal said that uh, he would take Christian refugees from Syria, but he would not take Muslim refugees from Syria. That's the same snake by a different name. So I, I don't know if people are going to also go after Ted Cruz on his hideous proposals that are very, very real. You know, by the way, speaking of that snake in the weeds, you know who's leading right now in Iowa? Number one in Iowa. Not Trump, not Carson, not Rubio, Ted Cruz. So as the entire Republican Party has turned against Donald Trump, the guy who is poised to take his place is in reality a little savvier, knows how to do politicking and marketing a little bit better than Donald Trump, but has the same proposals. Throws by any other name. In a way, something was lost once media stopped putting the phrase war on terror in rhetorical quotation marks. We lost a degree of critical distance on whether an abstraction could be an official enemy and battlefield practices and rationales appropriated to a fight that might happen anywhere against enemies unheard of until the event. As a framework for understanding the violence the U.S. is engaged in around the world, War on terror seems patently flawed, especially when it means war only on something called Islamic extremist terror, a term that itself confuses more than it explains. We are joined now to discuss this by Arun Kundyani. He teaches at NYU and is the author of, most recently, The Muslims Are Coming, Islamophobia, Extremism, and the Domestic War on Terror. Welcome to Counterspin, Arun Kundyani. Thank you for having me. Well, it's a truism that for many media and politicians, a killer who is Muslim is moved to kill by Islam, while one who says black people have to die uh, is a unique individual for whom that belief is part of a complex kaleidoscope of, of meanings. The reduction of Islam to violence and then the attendant policy ideas are in full bloom, uh, if you will, on the right right now, and it's really quite distressing to see, but if we could skip ahead to what might be called the liberal alternative to that vision, to that approach, for example, you've suggested that that vision is problematic in its own way. How so? Yes, I think we need to pay more attention to the way that we argue with conservatives in this area. So in the last week, for example, we've seen a lot of 
liberals reject Donald Trump's ban on Muslims on the grounds that to ban Muslims would inflame the opinion against us in the Middle East and therefore lead to more terrorism. And so what you're seeing, rather than a kind of principled argument against Trump's racism, what you're seeing instead is a kind of pragmatic argument that says, if we just say the wrong thing, then we're going to find that we will generate more terrorism again, which, of course, feeds this kind of underlying assumption that Muslims are these crazy people who are on the verge of becoming terrorists the whole time. You know, we have a, a kind of way of thinking, I think, coming from Democrat Party liberals and prominent voices in the kind of liberal commentariat that kind of takes this view where, where you, you kind of distinguish between the idea of moderate Muslims and the idea of extremist Muslims. And you say there's, there is a problem of extremist Muslims and, and we need to understand that that is not all Muslims. It's a, a you know, a certain subsection that we have a problem with. And, and you know, this is the, this, this is the kind of liberal alternative to the conservative idea that, you know, the problem is just Islam is violent. The problem is that you end up still assuming that there's just something about this population that leads to terrorism. And you ignore the fact that terrorism is, is a political problem. It's not a religious problem. Anyone who pays attention to what has been happening in the Middle East for decades and looks at the whole history here will understand that it's you know, what we're dealing with is a product of geopolitics. Religious ideology plays a role, but its role is, is one of giving people a vocabulary for expressing political issues. And it's not the underlying driver, it's not the root cause, which is what both liberals and conservatives tend to assume here. You've described radicalization as kind of the latest phase of Islamophobia. You know, it, it in shows like the television program Homeland, for example, it's seen as an advance because it locates terrorism on a psychological level, but it still presents Islam as itself kind of inherently radicalizing, and, and the question is just whether these people will succumb to it or, or not, you know, and, and one of the key points of that, I think, that is so important to keep in mind is that where that vision leads us is to a place where, you know, not all Muslims are bad, yes, of course, but if someone is Muslim and also critical of U.S. policies, then that is seen as adding up to a precursor to terrorism. And that, of course, is a very corrosive idea for for politics, for political expression. Yes, precisely. And so, you know, we we did not use this word radicalized or radicalization 20 years ago when we wanted to talk about terrorism. It's, a, it's, it's now become a part of our everyday vocabulary here in the media all the time. How has that happened? Well, it's because terrorism experts, so-called, have been regularly saying that radicalization is the key concept that we need to understand terrorism. What does this concept of radicalization mean? It means a process by which someone goes from being someone who's not a terrorist to being someone who is a terrorist. You just use the, the language here that captures that, the idea that someone's a precursor to being a terrorist. In other words, they're not a terrorist but something about them makes us think that they will be at some point in the future. So at the heart of this idea of radicalization, if we're going to use this vocabulary, there is a claim to be able to predict who can be a terrorist. 
right? No social scientific study has ever been able to achieve that predictive power. And yet the government officials and the media commentators, we all use this language that assumes that somehow you can tell from someone's non-violent, law-abiding behavior that they're on a, on a pathway to becoming a terrorist. And obviously those indicators that we assume tell us someone's on that pathway are all to do with religious behaviors in some way. So, you know, we have seen from the New York Police Department reports come out that say someone growing a beard, um, that's an indicator of radicalization. Uh, someone changing the clothing they wear to be what they call traditional family clothing is an indicator of radicalization. So no evidence supports this idea, but this has become part of our way of thinking about terrorism now. We're trying to, every Muslim in America, the question that is hovering over them is, oh, is there something about you that is displaying the signs of radicalization, that you're about to become a terrorist? That's, the, you know, that's what we look for now in these cases like in San Bernardino. What were the indicators of radicalization? The truth is, these things are, at the level of an individual, completely unpredictable. And there is no radicalization model that can explain how someone comes to believe that it's okay to kill their fellow We talk a little bit at least about how the tools of the so-called war on terror are then turned on domestic social movements. We talk about it moving that way. We talk less about how the suppression of social movements itself leads to the rise of, of terrorist groups and of violent groups. And you have discussed that as as being connected to the need to, if I can use your words, the need to defend the spaces of radical politics and the right to dream of another world. It does have something to do with having spaces for us to talk and to share political ideas. Uh, that's that's a critical kind of anti-violence tool, is it not? Yes, exactly. I mean, I think we desperately need to understand that the root cause of of political violence in any form is is political, right? It's not it's not about fanaticism. It's not about religion. It's about politics, and it's about people who feel that the regular day to day political processes have absolutely no chance of bringing about any redress for the injustices that they see in the world. So what we need is is more radicalization, in fact, in the genuine sense of the word, in, in the sense of people being able to participate in movements that offer a genuine chance of, of achieving social progress, a vision of what that would look like. We've been starved of, um, of visions of change that, that are compelling for something like two decades now. And that is really the context in which these... Uh, in which, you know, in, in Europe, for example, in which ISIS can, can have some kind of attraction for a tiny number of people because they're operating in a vacuum. No one else is offering, no one else is speaking the language of utopianism that they speak. Politics has been gentrified and, and made very bland, particularly for young people in communities of color in Europe. So that's, I think, ultimately where the alternatives arise.
Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that makes it fast and easy to create your own professional websites and online portfolios. They're known for having an eye for design, so you're sure to find that one of their dozens of templates beautifully fits your needs perfectly. Their responsive design will ensure that the site looks great regardless of which device your website visitor is using, and putting it all together with their drag-and-drop tools couldn't be easier to get you up and running in no time. Plus, their ever-growing list of third-party plugins will allow you to integrate all kinds of powerful systems to cater to your needs. All of this and more, plus 24-7 support, all starting at an amazingly low 8 bucks a month. And you can take an additional 10% off when you sign up by using the offer code LEFT. If you sign up for a year, you get 10% off the full year as well as a free domain. So try them out today and use the offer code LEFT when you sign up to save yourself some cash and show your support for this show at the same time. Squarespace, build it beautiful. Now, there is a silver lining uh, to all this Donald Trump madness. Did you ever think in a million years that Fox News would be defending Muslims? Well, here they are. <laughs> O'Reilly's got Donald Trump on his program, and he's going to sound like a liberal making a real case for, hey, we shouldn't hate people of one particular religion. <laughs> How did he do that to Fox News? That's amazing. That's a silver lining in all this mess. Let's watch. Would you cede, as I said last night, that you need Arab Muslim nations to help the United States defeat the jihad? Would you cede that? No, I don't, but I do you think don't. it would be very helpful. And no, but I do think it would be very, very helpful. All right, well, how does it help then if you say to the king of Jordan, you and all your people can't come here for a while until I sort it out. Saudi Arabia, Morocco, Egypt, their government is cooperating against ISIS with us. Turkey, their government is letting us land planes there. How is that helpful to ban people from all of those countries from coming here? It doesn't seem to be helpful Bill, to when, defeating the jihad. When you say... When you say their governments are letting us, we are paying a very big price to have governments let us do anything. But still, we have they don't have to allow have us to use bases in Turkey. We are paying a very big price. Everything we get, we pay a big price for. We get nothing for nothing. So, first of all, that's the thing about Trump. Will you see the most obvious point uh, in the world? No. Okay, yeah, it's uh, very, very good. Uh, I'll speak out of both sides of my mouth. Yes, we, we need those nations, but we don't need them. They pay a high price. We pay a high price, so we're not going to use them, but we could use them. I'm all over the place, but I am not ceding any ground. But the more important part is, here's O'Reilly saying, for God's sake, we need our Muslim brothers and friends. Look at this. More. But I disagree with you. Uh, in the sense that if you say no Muslims can travel here from overseas, you're hurting the United States' position against ISIS. We need the friendly Muslim nations. You can't insult them like that. You can't. Bill, I disagree. People have to be vetted. They have to be perfectly You can vet vetted. them, but you we can't insult the whole religion. In. We're not insulting. This is about security. It's not about religion. This is about security. We cannot allow people to come into this country that have 
horrible things in their mind. All right, everybody something agrees going with that. On. You did, I don't think you thought through the unintended consequences of banning an entire religion from coming to the United States. Just my opinion. Let me, let Bill, me roll Bill, something for Bill, you. I thought through everything, right. believe me. Okay. I thought through everything. Look at what's happening. I thought through everything. And again, I've had calls from friends of mine who happen to be right, Muslim saying you're the only one with the courage. Bill, they said you're the only one with the courage to say it. They all know what I'm saying is true. We want to win the war against ISIS and the Jihad. You've correct. got to enlist the Muslim nations to do it. Insulting them en masse is not the way. Trump is an unbelievable guy. So this is not about religion, it's about security. No, but you said it was, you're banning all Muslims, so that's obviously about religion. And then really you had Muslims call you and tell you, oh man, you're, you're the only one with enough courage to ban me. Really? They said that? Really? No, I've thought it all through. I've thought it all through, Bill. Yeah, I, I got this thing on lockdown. But really, the most amazing part here is Trump has done the undoable. He's gotten Dick Cheney and Bill O'Reilly to give as strong a defense of Muslims as I've seen. So there you have it. You're silver lining in a super, super dark cloud. So, okay, thanks for that, Donald. We appreciate it. You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, tell the RNC chair, Reince Priebus, to denounce his party's Islamophobia. Islamophobia is hardly new in this country, but it has intensified courtesy of a Republican party whose presidential candidates are unified in their blame and bigotry. Linda Sarsour, on behalf of the Council on American Islamic Relations, has a petition at change.org titled, The Republican Party Must Denounce the Dangerous Islamophobia of Candidates and Officials. It is comprehensive and yet to the point. She writes, quote, I am a mother of three, a working woman, and a civil rights activist. I am also Muslim. Since the November terror attack in Paris, we've seen an unprecedented rise in acts of discrimination, intimidation, and violence targeting American Muslims across the country. It makes me worry about my family and our country. But instead of calling for all Americans to rally together, a number of Republican presidential candidates and elected officials have been spreading baseless fear of Muslim Americans, unquote. It doesn't seem to matter how many studies are done that prove the real threats to American lives are guns and white, Christian-identified men. Othering minority religions and ethnicities is too easy for a party heavily invested in stoking fear to win votes. Sarsour draws the parallel between these individuals and ISIS, who is attempting to start a religious war by making non-Muslims fear the peaceful Muslims, like her, living and working in their communities. She asks that you join the more than 30,000 who have already added their names 
names to the care petition to show the GOP and its leading presidential candidate, Donald Trump, that Americans will not be provoked into giving ISIS exactly what it wants. Sarsour continues, quote, Hate-filled rhetoric and anti-Muslim attacks put American Muslim families like mine in real danger and play right into Desh's plans. If such Islamophobic hatred and bigotry is not rejected outright by the GOP, it will be part of the party's legacy and a part of our nation's legacy for generations to come. That isn't a legacy I want my children or anyone's to have to live with, unquote. Take one minute to sign and share CARE's petition urging the Republican Party to denounce Islamophobia. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources. And as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the Activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. If peace and tolerance matter to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about CARE's petition via social media so that others in your network can sign and share it too. Can you stand up and be counted as a body in a crowd? Put your name on a petition with your signature so proud. Can you raise your voice so loud as you stand with head on bowed, weather beating on your brow, demanding answers here and now? Because that's how you make a difference in this fickle world of change. Any time that you have a situation where you begin to believe that your countrymen are potentially the enemy within, or fifth columnists as they used to be called, you now open up the potential to tearing yourselves apart. If I can use the analogy of a dog with fleas, and Lord knows I've had a lot of dogs, um, you know, the fleas do damage, there's no question about it. But oftentimes when your dog's in real trouble due to a flea infestation, the real damage to the dog comes from the dog scratching itself and biting itself to try to get rid of the fleas, and they'll tear themselves to pieces. The terrorists are the fleas. We're the dog. And the minute we start thinking that fellow Americans are the enemy is the time we start doing the terrorists' work for them. I want to draw some comparisons to a time period that people who are my age and older remember. I always have to remind myself that I'm getting to be an old guy, too, because I'll say something like, you know, back in the 1980s I was doing this, and someone will tweet to me, I was two back then. And so I have to kind of recall what people, you know, are old enough to remember. But we are seeing, it's not the repeat of a movie, because there are there are key differences, but it is a very similar film, if you will, to what's called the second Red Scare which was the, the big communist scare that was especially prominent in the 1950s, but, but really continued into the 1960s, and we lived with the fumes of it even into the 1970s, where people feared the communists amongst us. You know, if you're in the Second World War and you're fighting the Nazis in Germany, that tends to bring the country together. Now, are there some German-Americans whose store windows get smashed and whatnot? You better believe it, but it's not the same. By and large, it unifies the country. Now, we all can remember, though, certain incidents which are considered to be black marks on our nation's history that are similar to some of the proposals you're already hearing people talk about. We locked up Japanese Americans on the West Coast because we were worried that in a war with Japan, they were going to be saboteurs and spies. There was a famous incident, and, and many of you probably know about it, where a submarine, not that far from where this shooting happened, by the way, the other day, surfaced off the coast and lobbed some shells at the U.S. coast and freaked people out. 
right? I mean, it's, it's fear that does this. The fear is what gets the dog to start biting themselves to pieces. And we had this fear in the 1950s where we worried about Americans being essentially brainwashed. We've used the term intellectual contagion in the history show before. And I, I love that phrase because it makes ideas out to be like germs. And if the idea is something we consider to be positive, like freedom, freedom is the kind of intellectual contagion that's like good bacteria, if you ask me. But of course, you know, there are others. The fear back in the 50s was that, you know, you'd send your good Boy Scout-like kid off to college and some, you know, clandestine communist professor would indoctrinate them with leftist ideas and they'd come home a communist, right? Then they'd start to undermine the country. The sort of things we did in the United States in the 1950s to deal with communist infiltration are the very definition of un-American. Ripping the Constitution apart and violating people's constitutional rights and making things illegal that are clearly within someone's you know, constitutional protections. For example, there's always been a distinction between thought and action, you know, thought and deed. If you do something, we can bring the hammer down on you, and very few people argue about it. But if you merely think something, that's when things become very controversial. I don't know how many of you know this, but you know it was illegal to be a communist after 1954? President Eisenhower signed a bill that was passed, I believe, by both houses of Congress unanimously making it illegal to be a member of the Communist Party. Now, that's a political, you know, thought. To be a member of a political belief system is a First Amendment right, even if the political belief system is something that's dangerous, potentially. Supposedly, it's when you act on that that the hammer can come down. So here in the United States, let's say you have somebody who is a conservative, orthodox, religious person. Muslim, Christian, Jewish, fill in the blank. Now, if you sit down with them at dinner, they might scare the heck out of you with how you know vociferous they can be and how hardline. But they're protected, right? They have a First Amendment right to freedom of religion to be that way. It's only when they do something that's actionable that you can turn around and say, listen, buddy, everybody's got a right to freedom of religion, but you can't go out and hurt somebody. The problem with reading some of the things that people have written, for example, at the uh, news stories online, you know, they have the comments section underneath, you can begin to see people talking about turning Muslim religious beliefs into something that's really akin to the way we treated communist thought in the 1950s. And what's so short-sighted about it, and why, why if you're an anti-terror planner, this looks like the country getting ready to tear itself apart, is because, and, and we've talked about it all the time, haven't we? All of the rights and freedoms and civil liberties and constitutional protections that have been, you know, put under pressure by the war on terror. I mean, you add the war on communism, the war on drugs, and the war on terror together. Those three things have eviscerated constitutional protection. I mean, the fourth is gone. We talk about that all the time. But there are certain things that are, you know, relatively still intact that this shooting the other day endangers. And I'm not sure people see it. For example, the freedom of religion, which is a First Amendment right. At what point does someone's religious beliefs become actionable? Let me read you some of the comments. And, and these are random. I didn't, I didn't go find the worst comments I could find. I went to three or four websites, including the New York Times, and just copied and pasted a few, you know, of the comments by readers. Now, there were a couple of really deep, thoughtful, wise ones. And of course, you know, that's what we say when they agree with us, right? Isn't that typical? But most of them, 
one way or another, sounded like the ones I'm going to read to you. Can you hear the danger in these statements? Now, understand something. This is all predictable, right? This is what terrorists want. This is the exact reaction that the people who strike us want us to have. And by the way, as an aside, after the Paris attacks three weeks ago, there were a bunch of really good articles pointing out that the reaction that European governments had to those attacks was exactly what the people, you know, who may have carried out the attacks were hoping for. It was a public relations nightmare for the people who run the Islamic State to have so many Muslims fleeing from them because the way they sell themselves is that this is a place where they can be protected and be Muslim and come here, right? They're, they're kind of trying to do for Muslims, Sunni Muslims, what Israel does, right? You'll be safe here. This is the homeland for the Jews. This is the only place where you can really be trusted to be safe and you can live as a Jew and you, and you will take care of you and we'll, we'll protect each other and all that kind of stuff. Well, ISIS is trying a similar sort of line. It looks really bad for their propaganda when the very people that they're saying, you know, come home to Islam are fleeing out of terror. So they may have, these articles said, launched these attacks as a way to convince the European governments, don't take these people, send them home, right? Stop these people from doing things that actually work against the public relations of the Islamic State. And of course, you know, we reacted predictably. It's very hard not to. President Obama gave a speech the other night, one of I read in a news story, one of only three addresses, primetime addresses to the nation. Can that really be true? If so, I think he's given less than any president since Eisenhower. But in his 10-minute speech, one of the things he said, and there were a lot of things I didn't like in 10 minutes or a bunch of things I didn't like, but the one thing he said that I did was three to five times he said, this is exactly what he calls them ISIL, but to keep things from getting confusing, we'll still call them ISIS. He said, to do this the standard knee-jerk reaction that we all kind of satisfyingly want to happen is to do just what they want us to do, right? Closing the borders to Europe after the Paris attack is exactly why the attack was launched, according to many news stories. So it's very hard to sit back and take the wise approach when the wise approach requires you to do the exact opposite of what your heart and gut tells you to do. Do you see any presidential candidates running for office saying anything other than, vote for me, I'll kill more terrorists than my opponent? Because that's what Americans want to hear, right? That's Maybe this is the downside of the kind of political system we have, is that it caters to that lowest common denominator and doesn't reward someone who's trying to be wise and to protect your constitutional rights. Let me read you a few of these comments that I cut and pasted from you know, the, the comments section underneath these news stories concerned with this attack in San Bernardino. And I think you'll begin to see the dangers that I'm talking about when you talk about the anti-terror planners worrying about us turning against our own people out of fear. The first one, quote, You do not let any new Muslims in the country. You make all non-American citizen Muslims leave the country. You notify and watch every known Muslim in America and take action against them at the first sign of trouble. We're at war with them, so make us as safe as possible. Monitor the Internet and shut down any sites we need to. Get back to monitoring all communications for terrorist activity and put all suspected American citizen terrorists in long-term holding for public safety. We are at war with Muslims. Not all of them, but the majority. So let's start acting like it and take the actions to make America safe. End quote. I have another one. Quote, this was supposedly a sane, rational Muslim without an ounce of hatred in his bones. He's referring to the person who carried out the San Bernardino attacks. He continues, quote, then he embraces extremism and goes on a killing rampage. 
Unfortunately, this is happening with more and more frequency to Muslims without an ounce of hatred in their bones. The United States government should deport all Muslims living in America, with the exception of the ones that have converted to Christianity, Hinduism, or Buddhism. They could make their final destination resemble a new subdivision, calling it Gitmo Reserve. End quote. Here's another one. Quote. President Roosevelt, meaning Franklin Roosevelt in the Second World War, had a good idea once when he dealt with the Japanese in America after Pearl Harbor. Round up all the Muslims and put them in those supposed FEMA camps all over the country until the FBI can ascertain whether they're terrorists or not. After all, we are at war and it is evident that you can't tell the supposed good ones from the bad. After a few years, if they're vetted, give them a hundred dollars and let them out. End quote. Here's another one. Quote. Here's a start. Stop letting those Muslims in the country and get rid of the ones here. They're breeding kids over there to kill us. At age five, they start MMA fighting and knife-stabbing drills, shooting and training on machine guns and bomb-making at age ten. If Obama lets them in, citizens better arm up. Our family is. There's not enough police to protect all. See how many cops are on duty in your neighborhood at any time? Protect your family. End quote. And what I would say to conservatives out there is that that attack in San Bernardino the other day directly attacks some of the rights that conservatives most revere. I mean, the gun rights are a perfect example. Look at how that attack puts some of the, of the conservative Republicans on the defensive in interesting ways. Now, I always take the libertarian wing of the Republicans and separate them because they tend to be much more concerned and consistent about seeing the dangers to constitutional rights for these things. But there's a whole bunch of them that keep talking about getting rid of due process and anything else we need so that we're not namby-pamby in wartime. Well, what do you do when the terrorists start using our own Second Amendment rights against us? When you're talking about taking the gloves off and doing what it need, what you need to do to keep Americans safe, and Americans start getting shot up by our own weapons, you know, what does that do to your philosophy? Now, if the early indications are any measure, some of these people are just doubling down. We don't need fewer guns, we need more guns. You need shooters, you know, who are good people at these mass shootings to take down the bad people. Well, listen, nobody would stand up and cheer louder than I would if that happened. And I'm somebody who does believe that, that firearms do protect people in a lot of occasions and certainly um, have their uses. And I've always said that. Uh, but I have yet to see one of these mass shooting incidents end because some citizen shooter took the gunman down. And I would be very concerned if I were a pro-gun person on what would happen if a shootout did occur and you found out some of the victims died because the citizen good guy shooter shot them by mistake during a gun battle. Nonetheless... That's one of the areas where you begin to see conservatives. It's going to be scary because the Second Amendment is very important to a lot of conservatives. And now you see the terrorists exploiting that as a way to hurt Americans. And another thing that they should be concerned about is freedom of religion. Those comments that I read where those people are so ready to treat Muslims the way we treated Japanese Americans in the Second World War, you know, they act as though you can separate Muslims from other religious beliefs, right? That you can make an exception. If you were talking about doing any of this stuff to Christians or Jews or any of the more majority religions in this country, those people would be up in arms. But they're short-sighted if they don't believe that any exception you make to go after Muslims' freedom of religion and saying something like, you know, if you go and think anything too radical. Remember, the, the division between actions and thoughts used to be a pretty pronounced one. You can think anything you want. It's a free country, right? You can think 
Nazism and be a Nazi in your head. You just can't go out there and throw bricks through a Jewish store window, right? So the, the definition used to be action. But what these people are suggesting we treat Muslims like is to treat them based on their belief system. How short-sighted do you have to be to not see how that violates their freedom of religion, which opens the door to your freedom of religion being violated? The minute you start talking about, you know, dealing with people based on the way they think, especially the religious way, I mean, we had, since the last show we did, an abortion clinic shooting. Now, that's still uh, being investigated and, and information is still coming out. But if it turns out that the early statements attributed to the guy who shot up the people at that abortion clinic turned out that he's a, what would you call it, a radical Christian? I'm not sure what the proper terminology would be. Can't you see how the same mentality that you're using to go after Muslims is not some special exception, but that can easily be applied. And people will turn around and say, well, listen, if you can do this to Muslims based on the idea that, listen, you cross this line from orthodox to ultra-orthodox, and now you've become dangerous, even if you haven't thrown the brick through the Jewish store window yet, can't you see how that can be used against your religion? That's why it's always been taught to us, folks, that you have to protect the constitutional freedoms of people you dislike and disagree with because it ends up saving that same wall that protects you. These people who want to lock Muslims up are not thinking straight. We just heard clips featuring the Young Turks on the violence breaking out at Trump rallies, David Pakman on the support from the GOP base for Trump's extreme policies, Jimmy Dore's rant about Trump's threat to democracy itself, the Young Turks on the GOP politicians actually denouncing Trump's plan to stop all Muslims from entering the country. Counterspin hosted a conversation with Aaron Kunani on the upsurge of Islamophobia and the concept of radicalization. The Young Turks pointed out that even Bill O'Reilly is now challenging Trump. Our activism for today was from the Center for American Islamic Relations, and we just finished off with comments from Common Sense with Dan Carlin about the extreme damage we can do to ourselves out of fear of what little damage Islamic terrorists could actually do to us. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, Jay. This is Elka in Fort Wayne. And um, just a, a couple thoughts uh, in response to the latest episode, the Black Lives Matter episode. I want to dispel, hopefully once and for all, the idea, the myth really, that um, somehow, uh, you know, there's this epidemic of black-on-black -black crime. I, I'm so sick of hearing that, and I can't believe that people still spout that and believe that and, and keep, um, you know, sort of using that, uh, you know, against the black community. There, there is no epidemic of black-on-black -black crime. Statistics and data have shown that most crime is actually intra-racial, not interracial. So there, there's not an epidemic among black folks of, of black, uh, you know, criminals committing crime against black victims. That happens in every community, unfortunately. I'm not saying this is a good thing, but I'm simply saying that this is not somehow disproportional to, to, to black folks. White folks are killing and robbing and stealing and, and, and whatever crimes, committing whatever crimes against other white folks. 
Latinos are killing and robbing and stealing and whatever else against uh, other Latinos. And yes, black folks are typically killing and robbing and, and whatever other crime against other black uh, people. So there is no epidemic of black on black crime. Okay, that's first. And second, for those of us who are in the community who do have some personal feelings around it because we're members of the community, it is a concern that we know how to hold in our hands at the same time that we also hold the concern of uh, structural racism and, and um, you know police brutality being a systematic violence and a systematic oppression. Um, that is committed against the black community. We know how to, to hold both those things in our hands at the same time. It's not an epidemic. Does it affect me personally as a member of the black community? Sure it does. Am I disappointed by it? Am I saddened by it? Obviously. But it's not happening somehow at a uh, you know higher, more disproportionate rate in our community than it is in any other community. So I just I want to dispel that. I, I don't want to ever hear that again. I'm just so sick of hearing that. And um, if your listeners don't believe me, just hop on the Google machine and, and type in, you know, the myth of black on black crime. And, um, you know, you'll get all kinds of data and statistics that dispel that myth. Thanks so much, Jay. And uh, by the way, that was a really great show. Have a good one. Thanks. Hey, Jay, this is Dan from Maine calling to talk about the police brutality and how cops are trained to kill, kind of offering a, a, a bit of an advice, I guess, in some ways. I work at a um, mental health treatment facility for kids with trauma history and behavioral issues, and a lot of what we deal with, actually, is violent situations, how to de-escalate them, you know, how to approach someone who is in crisis or in a violent situation. Um, and I watched some of these videos, and they're just awful. I watched the ones where they're just walking around with a knife, and obviously that is an unsafe situation, but we deal with that kind of thing almost on a weekly basis, whether kids break windows and, and come after us with large pieces of glass or they break table legs that have got nails in them and they chase after us and we don't have any way to defend ourselves other than our training. We obviously can call the cops but I would say maybe one out of 15 crisis situations we've ever had to use the police and when we do use them we kind of instruct them what we want them to do which is what we should be doing on a national level is instructing cops what we want them to do in those situations. Something that I could offer up as advice, I guess, in one way is we're trained in what's called therapeutic crisis intervention. Uh, and this runs a whole gamut of how to approach people in crisis situations, how to talk to them, what your body should look like. And yes, I deal with kids, but kids are getting killed too, along with adults. TCI, therapeutic crisis intervention, was developed by Cornell. It, improved on a lot of other uh, systems that have come before it that weren't so good, but it's basically how to hold an individual who's in crisis situations to keep them safe and to keep others safe, and that's the only reason why we use it. Otherwise, we do tons of training on how to approach. Again, approach is the number one thing that we use. What does our voice sound like? What are we doing with our face? What are we doing with our hands? What are we doing with our body? And those situations calm themselves down just 
apply the approach, the therapeutic approach to let them know that we're there to help them and that we're going to keep them safe, even if that does mean uh, a physical altercation in what we call a hold or a restraint, but it's always there to keep them safe. And this is something that we need to ask the police force to do. Luckily here in Maine, uh, I've been invited recently to talk about violent situations in a group where teachers and cops and local politicians and, and used car dealers are all coming together to talk about this because it's not something that we want to see here in Maine and it's starting to leak up here as well. I don't really know how much more I can say about it, but therapeutic crisis intervention is phenomenal really and um, has certainly saved myself from bodily harm and, and a couple of times I have had my life threatened and I felt like my life was threatened. But with the training in the back of the mind to automatically use it, it's phenomenal. I'll uh, I'll stop ranting. Thank you for all your good work. Just maybe something you can talk, uh, touch on at some point. Thanks, Jay. Keep up the great work. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Katie Klebusik for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, today, all I have is a quick question for you. Now, you may have noticed, or maybe not, that over the last year or so, To the best of my ability, I have refused to cover the election. As we all know, the 2016 election started in November 2014, which is terrible and asinine, but that's how our system works. And as soon as it started, I was already tired of it. And I thought, oh no, please, please don't. I just, I just can't handle it. Don't make me do it. So I didn't. And (laughs) so instead, I I did all the shows uh, that I did that are pretty much not election election or even politician centric for the most part you know every once in a while someone will meet me and they'll ask what i do or whatever and i'll sort of explain at least to some degree and they'll say oh man that's terrible you know like either they hate politics generally and then the election makes it even worse or they say like oh yeah man like politics that's rough like so what do you think of the election and i say no no no, you got to understand I hate politics too. The election is horrible. I can't stand listening to it. Uh, so I, I try to avoid that at all costs. And then, you know, and then sometimes a person will say like, oh, well, that's interesting. Well, then what do you talk about? And I say, politics. There are lots of things that are politics that aren't elections. And so that's what I've tried to do with this show. But of course, this is, now actually the election year. And I've, I've been saying to myself, all right, like if I'm going to cover the election, I'm going to at least wait to 2016. And now here we are. Uh, we have a uh, something very close to a fascist running for president and, and winning uh, currently in the primaries. So clearly I'm going to cover that aspect of it. But the question is, what do you want the show to sound like over the next year? So like there's a spectrum. Uh, one end of the spectrum is I could probably produce episodes throughout the entire year that talked about news stories, but that if this show was the only show you were listening to, you wouldn't even know that an election was happening. I could, I could skip all the, all the clips that made any reference to the election. So it could just be, you know, totally silent on the election itself. And then the other end of that spectrum is like cable news. 
So I want your opinion on where you want this show to fall. Clearly, I'm going to do some shows on the election, but how many? What should they sound like? What should we focus on? You know, I, I could probably come up with answers to that myself, but then I thought, hey, why don't I ask you what you want? So get in touch however you want, voicemail, email, tweet at me, Facebook, message me, uh, whatever you want to do. Just, you know, give me a, a sentence or, or however much or 17 paragraphs as, as some of you like to do. Uh, let me know what you think. What do you think the show should sound like? I will take all of your answers and then do whatever I think is best anyways. But, but you know, taking your suggestions into consideration. So either get in touch with the website or the number again, 202-999-3991. Of course, comment on that or anything else you like. And that is going to be it for today. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks to all those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Get even more from us by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway and outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C. My name is Jay, and this has been the Best of a Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained We can't see past all the sad stories And wonder what we're missing Past our own sad stories and wonder what we're doing.